Our text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, which I read a few moments ago, his account of the baptism of Jesus. Life is fragile. We've seen that throughout 2020. Unfortunately, we're continuing to see that in the opening days and weeks of 2021. Life is fragile. Our bodies are fragile. Our health is fragile. Our relationships with one another are fragile, and they don't last forever. We've seen that government institutions are fragile. Political parties are fragile. Our freedoms are fragile. Civilization, apart from the restraining grace of God, is such a fragile thing. The world is fragile. You know, Jesus actually said, what good is it if you gain the entire world and yet forfeit your soul? And he means a lot of things by that, but one of the things he means is you need something bigger and even more stable than the world. You were made, you were designed for something even greater and bigger and more stable than that. The terra firma underneath our feet is not big enough, is not stable enough. It's fragile. This is what God is showing us through Mark here in his account of the baptism of Christ. He's showing us two things that we need. First of all, he's showing us in the baptism of Christ something of ultimate reality. He's showing us what is at the very core, the the foundation of all of existence, of all of life, of the universe, the meaning of life. And secondly, he's showing us here in this account of the baptism of Jesus how that foundation can be yours and how it is yours. Ultimate reality, the foundation of all things, what's behind all things, the core of all things, the meaning of life, and how that can be yours, is yours. What it means, that's our focus in this fragile world, in these fragile times in which we live. First of all, ultimate reality, the foundation that I'm speaking of, that we see here in this description of Christ's baptism, we see that in verses 10 and 11. It says, when he, that is Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. We'll get to that at the end of the message. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. 
Now, what is God showing us here? God, in that description of the baptism of Christ, he's pulling back the veil just a little bit, and we see ultimate reality. We see what is at the core, the foundation. We're seeing, we're getting a glimpse of the and the inner relationships of God himself. We're peering into the very heart of what theologians call the Godhead of God, a Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three persons of the triune God that we see here. There's one God, one being, there's three persons. And the Father is 100% God, and the Son is 100% God, and the Holy Spirit is 100% God, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and the Son isn't the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. It's simple, really. The great mystery of the Trinity is what we see here, but more importantly, we're seeing how the members of the Trinity treat one another and interrelate with one another. Notice, you see what's happening here. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person, comes up out of the water, and it says that he saw heaven torn open, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descended upon him. What is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit there is covering the Son of God and he's pouring into the Son of God his very presence. His power, the comfort that the Son of God would need. It's a loving thing that the Holy Spirit is doing for the Son. And then we hear a voice. It's the voice of the Father. And what's the Father doing in this moment of the baptism? Well, he's pouring his love and he's covering the Son, his Son with his love. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. He's speaking directly to the Son is the Father. And again, this shows us something of the inner workings, the inner relationships of the Godhead of the Trinity that before history existed, before time and space, from all eternity there was God, and God isn't just some sort of static, unmovable sort of rock, uncaused, first caused, but there is a dynamic nature to God. There is one God, but within that one God, there are these three persons, and the Father from all eternity has been pouring his love and praise in to the Son, and the Son has been pouring His love and praise and glorifying the Father, and the Father and Son has been pouring their love into the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit pouring His love into the Father and Son, and it's what theologians, it's what C.S. Lewis referred to as the dance. That what is at the core, the foundation of all things, ultimate reality we see here is a community, it is relationships, it's a koinonia, that is a fellowship, there's a great intimacy here, the foundation of it all that we see here, it's love. And it's what you were made for, it's why you exist. And quite frankly, it's why you're so miserable and happy and dissatisfied so often. because so often we don't seek this. 
Now compare and contrast this view of reality, the core, the foundation, ultimate reality is relationships, is love. And that, you know, we ask the question sometimes, well, why did God create the world? Why did God create human beings? And sometimes the answer is, well, I guess he was, he was bored or he was lonely. God wasn't lonely. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There wasn't, there wasn't loneliness, there wasn't a need. Why does God create us creatures in his image? It's because he wants to invite you and bring you into the dance, into that love. It is an eternal and a never-ending love that he wants you to have with him. And again, you compare that view of reality, and look, everyone in the room has a different worldview, and there's millions of worldviews. As many people in the world, there's a different view of the world. But when you boil it all down, there's two. There's the biblical worldview of this God, of this foundation of love at the heart of all things within God himself that he wants you to be a part of, and there's what we could call the secular view which is what? Now, this is the one we teach in our, so many of our schools and the prevailing thought of the day. But your life is an accident. You're merely the product of a lot of time and a lot of random chance things. There's no design and there's no purpose behind it. It's simply just raw, natural selection, survival of the fittest, and here you are. I mean... Amazing, what a, what a random accidental thing you are. And you know what that means? At my house, every evening, we only have the one child, so it makes it a lot easier. We have our bedtime routine where either myself or my wife Leah, and we get into bed with Amelia, and Amelia has her book, and I have my book. And she reads her book, and I'm reading, and she laughs, and I say, what are, you, what are you laughing about? She tells me what she's laughing about in her book. Or I read to her, and then we turn off the light, we say our prayers, kiss on the forehead, all the love. It's a lot easier to love our children when they're asleep. I will give you that. But that love for my daughter and if the secular view is it and we're just accidents and the, the ultimate thing in the universe is just molecules and atoms and matter, there is no such thing as a, love is an illusion. It's just chemical reactions in the brain. It's just dopamine and pheromones and chemical reactions in the synapse. There's no real such thing as love. And, you know, the love that I have for my wife and all those feelings and that love that we have, again, that's just chemical reactions designed through a hook and crook and chance happenings that allows the genetic code to be passed on. Is that who you are. Can you accept that about yourself? Of course not. You know every Christian or not a Christian, you know everything within you says, no way. And God is showing us here again ultimate reality. He's showing us the way he relates that kind of love and he wants that love, he wants you to have that eternal and everlasting love to be part of the dance. Now, secondly, how can that and how is that yours? 
How is it possible that you can possibly be brought into Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that love forever? Well, the baptism of Jesus shows us that too. Back up in verse 4, it says John, speaking of John the Baptist, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Do you see the picture here? All of Jerusalem, all of Judea. Some people have speculated maybe half a million people. Out in the wilderness, and there is John, and he's got the crazy clothes and crazy hair and animal skins and locusts and wild honey. And it's a baptism of, it says, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is not the way we think about baptism, Christian baptism that Christ instituted. That was baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism, baptismo in Greek simply means I wash. You baptize the dishes. This was, you know, there's a lot of ritual washings in the Old Testament. This was sort of a, just a symbolic outward thing that was happening here where people were confessing their sins and John pours the water over them symbolically, you know, cleansing them of their sins. And if you think about it, all those thousands and thousands of people and all of their sins symbolically going where? Into the water of the Jordan River. And that is a polluted river. The water is polluted by their sin and all of their shame. And then Jesus comes along. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, and he says, John, I want you to baptize me. Now, why is Jesus? This is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Does Jesus need to repent of anything? No. There are no sins to forgive. So why is Jesus having John baptize him? This is the very beginning of his ministry. Again, season of epiphany, manifesting who he is and why he's come into the world. This is the first thing he's doing to show the world. And think about it. The sinless, perfect, righteous son of God steps down into that water that's been polluted by all the sins of the people, all of the people, the text makes sure it says. And then when John the Baptist takes that sin-polluted water and pours it over the sinless perfection of the son of God, it's a foreshadowing and a foretaste of the cross. And Jesus even refers to the cross, and he says, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? As he's baptized with sin, with shame, and with the wrath of God. For you. And it says that when Jesus, verse 10 again, came up out of that sin-polluted water, immediately he saw the heavens being, quote, torn open. Now that is a very strange verb to use about heaven, torn open. Normally we think of heaven going, oh, and it's very gentle. And Matthew and Luke, at their account of the baptism, it just says heavens opened. Mark says the heavens were torn open. It's a strange verb. Mark uses it only one other time in his gospel in Mark chapter 15 under a section entitled, The Death of Jesus. 
And it says that there was darkness over the whole land. It says that Jesus cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the sufferings of Christ on the cross, it wasn't just nails in the hands and the feet. That all that infinite love the Father had been pouring into him and the, the praise and the love that he had received from all eternity, it's gone. My God, why have you forsaken me? And then verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And when that happened, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom as if God himself is reaching down and taking that curtain of separation between the people and his holy presence and he's tearing it in two now that the son of God has taken on the sin and the shame of all the people and as Jesus comes up out of the water at his baptism he sees heaven being torn open because that's exactly what God has done for you heaven is wide open and you have access to God you're brought into that love and the exact same words that the Father says to Jesus here at his baptism, he says to you today, all of your sin, what have you done this very week? That sin that you've done for the 1,042nd time or something long ago in your past that you still can't get over, this is what the God the Father says to you today. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. Sometimes on a Tuesday morning when I drive into the office and I got all my list and who have I disappointed this week, I'll write out on a piece of paper, Scott, comma, you are my beloved son and I am so proud of you. I'm so pleased with you. That'll change your day to hear God say that to you. And then finally, how this is possible for us, how you can be brought in. The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. That is weird. I, many of you grew up in the church, so oh, of course, Holy Spirit, dove. No, that's weird. <laughs> We're used to seeing the images of the white, beautiful dove. The Holy Spirit like a dove? That's odd. What in the world is this here for? Well, we go back to what was our first reading, Genesis chapter 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There in the moment of creation, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And the Hebrew word here we translate as hovering is the Hebrew word for fluttering. It's the fluttering of the wings of a bird is the imagery here of a dove. So that when Mark and the gospel writers are going to try to understand what is happening here in the baptism, 
The moment of creation, the Spirit comes over the waters, fluttering like a dove. And here in the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit again comes down, fluttering like a dove. What is he saying? He's saying that just as God made his creation through the power of his word, so you now, Christian, are a new creation. You are a child of God. You are a new creation. You are a new type of humanity. As we just sang, there is that royal, divine blood DNA within you. I said this several weeks in a sermon. I'll say it again. Carry yourself like one who is of royalty. You are an heir and a co-heir of the kingdom of God along with your brother, Jesus Christ who paid it all for you. Carry yourself. We're no longer a slave to fear. You are a child of God. Oh, but we are afraid. We are worried. We're really worried. A lot of fears. Because we're looking, we're basing our life and everything we are on what? On the frailty and the frail things of this world. Political parties is not where you want to place your hope. Political parties are fragile. The government is fragile. Our freedoms are fragile. Civilization is fragile. Your body is fragile. Your health is fragile. Your relationships are fragile. Your success is fragile. What people think about you, it's pretty fragile. And true to the degree that that is what we're building our life on, Jesus again says, you forfeit your soul. You were made for more. Pastor, that's easy for you to say, you know. It is, I guess, relatively easy for me to say. It wasn't easy for Mark to say and to show us. As we wrap up here, who is Mark anyway who's writing this? Mark was the right-hand man, was the assistant, was the disciple of the Apostle Peter. And when Mark is writing this gospel, he is writing down and recording the remembrances, the teaching, and the preaching of Peter, who was there and an eyewitness to all these events. And why is Mark writing all this down? It's because Peter has been executed by the Roman government because he's a follower of Christ. And now in 64 AD, Rome burns and the emperor Nero uses this to his political advantage. And one of the things he does is he begins the systematic persecution of the Christians. He blames the fire on them to give him an excuse to destroy them and to destroy the church. Husbands are taken away literally from the arms of their wives and mothers are ripped from the arms of their children And the things that Nero did, I'll say to you, friends, brothers, sisters, we really can't comprehend 
in the 21st century America. And I can't even imagine the, what would it be, I mean, the temptation to give it up, to forsake this Jesus stuff, must have been overwhelming, but they didn't. And in fact, not despite the persecution, but because of this persecution, millions and millions and millions of people became Christians, and here we are today as followers. They do it, it's because they were not building their life on the frail things and the fragile things. But they were brought in eternal and never-ending love is ultimate reality, the foundation of all things and can be the foundation for your life to Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.